This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Thank you, Beck. Um, I'm not sure I recognize myself, but uh, I'm humbled. Um, fear not. Be not afraid. Among the biblical exhortations and commands that I've found most consistently challenging in my life um, is this often repeated refrain um, in, of both the Old and the New Testament. Fear comes naturally to me. I vividly remember the many fears that I had as a college student. I was often afraid that everyone else in a course was finding the material easy that I was bamboozled by. I was fearful that if I asked a question that other students already knew the answer to, I would be revealing the depths of my ignorance. As a Christian at a large public university, I was afraid that if I expressed my opinion as a Christian, I would be dismissed as silly or simplistic by my instructor and my fellow students. Yet I was also afraid that if I didn't express my Christian convictions, I would be an unfaithful, pitiful, cowardly Christian. One of my frequent anxiety dreams during college was finding out that I had failed to fill out the right form to drop a class that I hadn't attended since the second week of the term. The final for this class was happening within an hour, and I'd have to take it, even though I was totally unprepared. Fear and I were on intimate terms. Now my fears are mainly about the future of the planet. I fear that my grandchildren will become adults in a world that is more unstable and more damaged than our broken world is now. What are you afraid of? What keeps you up at night? What sets your heart racing? Those of you who are students probably know that those who care about you are increasingly anxious about your levels of anxiety. Um, studies and articles about you have created a new category of fear. Fear of missing out. Fear of missing out, research shows, keeps people relentlessly checking your text messages, Twitter feeds, and Instagram accounts. Come on, who's checked it since the beginning of this ceremony? <laughs> um, fear of missing out makes people become agitated when they've gone too long without a dose of social media. Since 2014, Chapman University has done an annual national survey to identify the patterns of our fears. The survey provides evidence that collectively our fears as Americans are largely influenced by what the media we consume keeps at the top of our minds. In 2014, the top fears in the Chapman survey were fear of walking alone at night, fear of identity theft, and fear of government gun control. For the last four years, corruption in government has come out 
the, as the number one fear in the survey. In the last two years, environmental threats have had the largest share of the next nine fears. And in the last two years, environmental and economic fears have become so salient that they've pushed fear of terrorism completely out of the top 10 list. One antidote for fear is education. Um, so if you're as fearful as I was as a college student, you're in the right place. Uh, education can help us add to our knowledge, cultivate deep understanding, and if done especially well, can help us grow in wisdom. Education can give us the tools for distinguishing between what is merely fearful and what is actually dangerous. Hans Rosling, in his book Factfulness, explains why human beings are so prone to exaggerate and misidentify fears and threats. One reason for this is that it's easier for us to identify purported individual villains than to engage in the hard work of understanding the multiple interactive causes that create problems. Another part of Rosling's diagnosis focuses on our appetite for the dramatic and our selective memory. Gradual progress is just not newsworthy. Since the undramatic is unlikely to make headlines or receive many clicks on the internet, we lose sight of the fact that step by step and year by year, the world is, in fact, improving in significant ways. Education can help us counter fear with correct information and with the uh, skill of asking savvy questions. This will decrease our fear and protect us when data is being selectively presented to cloud our understanding or to get us to buy something, whether that's the latest identity theft protection or a political agenda. Education can also expose us to worldviews that are different from our own and so that we can test and refine our fundamental assumptions. And of course, education can hone the tools that enable us to address real dangers. Education can help us cultivate the wisdom to know which problems are the most important to tackle and how to pursue effective solutions. Education has helped us move large percentages of the world population out of extreme poverty and to increase life expectancy globally. Whitworth University's liberal arts-based education equips people to benefit from the legacy of wisdom of the best of the world's humanities, sciences, social sciences, and the arts. I hope that you students um, are at Whitworth because Whitworth faculty are invested in empowering you empowering you no matter what your major or career path toward lifelong learning, professional development, and meaningful social engagement. Such an education will equip you to make the world less dangerous and more equitable. Perhaps most profoundly, education can expose us to ideas like Plato's, that courage is not, in fact, the absence of fear, but knowing what to fear most. Plato asserted that we should fear the corruption of our souls more than we fear death. 
If our own corruptibility is what we fear most, we will take the risks that are necessary for acting with integrity in all situations. The parallel Christian thought is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Education can provide us with role models like Hildegard von Bingen, a 12th century nun, botanist, playwright, and artist who wrote scathing letters to the corrupt kings and religious leaders of her day. Um, and the um, brave people uh, that Dr. Soden has just helped us uh, remember uh, connected to Whitworth. Former South African political prisoner and President Nelson Mandela once said, may your choices reflect your hopes and not your fears. And so I turn with some trepidation to the topic of Christian hope. Speaking about Christian hope is dangerous because the risk of saying something trite is huge. Too many Christians, when talking about hope, turn hope into a glitter halo pasted on deep human suffering. It is especially intimidating to be speaking about hope in front of true scholars of the subject, such as Dr. Patty Brunick and Dr. Jonathan Moo. Um, in many ways, it would be more prudent to remain silent and have you quietly meditate on Romans chapter 8. However, I will risk a few thoughts um, informed by a book written by French Christian sociologist Jacques Ellou. Uh, this book was published about the time I was in college. Ellou wrote, uh, wrote during a time that was fraught with increasing levels of scorn, suspicion, and derision in public discourse and in the arts. He gave dire warnings that, uh, about the fragmentation of the church and about how unreflective applications of technology could turn potentially useful tools into dehumanizing mechanisms for commercial and political ex exploitation and manipulation. The title of Elu's book is Hope in Time of Abandonment. The decades since the publication of that book have not resulted in much progress in grappling with the threats that Elu noted. Elu observes that Christian hope must be rooted in realism, in prayer, and in waiting. Hope-filled waiting must be characterized by an expectancy that is both eager and patient. Realism is an unwillingness to settle for cheap optimism that minimizes genuine brokenness, human limits, and the direness of the human predicament. Realism does not try to distract us from our existential fears by focusing us on more superficial threats. Existential fear is fear of loss of what is central to who we are and what we love most. Writer Katherine Schultz expresses her existential fear in a New Yorker essay entitled Losing Streak. Listen to what she says. 
When we are experiencing it, loss often feels like an anomaly, a disruption in the usual order of things. In fact, though, loss is the usual order of things. Entropy, mortality, extinction, the entire plan of the universe consists of losing, and life amounts to a reverse savings account in which we are eventually robbed of everything. Our dreams and plans and jobs and knees and backs and memories, the childhood friend, the wife or husband of 50 years, the father or mother of forever, the keys to the house, the keys to the car, the keys to the kingdom, the kingdom itself. Sooner or later, all of it drifts into the valley of lost things. Schultz sums up by saying, we will lose everything we love in the end. Realism faces the fact that no matter how many medical advances we achieve and how many alternative energy sources we create, creation is still growing in light of human, um, in, still groaning in light of human mortality and real ongoing suffering. The difference between Catherine Schultz's worldview and that of the Apostle Paul is that Paul is convinced that the kingdom itself cannot be lost, at least not if it's the kingdom of God and not just a human fiefdom. Christian hope affirms that despite all appearances to the contrary, God's kingdom is present now and will ultimately come in fullness. Hope that is seen is not hope, yet Paul confidently hopes for the full redemption of God's creation, including us, through the grace available through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But Paul is a realist. He does not promise that Christians will not suffer. Instead, he affirms that through the mystery of God's grace, our suffering will not be meaningless. Because hope that is seen is not hope, Jacques Lou calls hope a firm advance towards a masked future. We cannot depend on mere human knowledge or know-how to solve existential problems. Nor can we stand by indifferently as creation groans. Consequently, we must resort to prayer. Perseverance in prayer aids our discernment of and cooperation with what God is doing in and for the world. Our prayers of compassion for others propel us into the world to act in ways that make our prayers truthful. As Anthony Bloom reminds us, prayer without action is a lie. When our actions are infused by realism and prayer, we will not be frustrated when our actions do not have quick results. And we will persevere even during times when God seems distant and silent. Hopeful waiting is not passive, but the actions produced by hope are not frenetic because the outcome depends on God and not on our often bumbling attempts at faithfulness.
Isaiah chapter 40 tells us that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar like eagles. They will run and not be weary, walk and not faint. May this semester be filled with renewed strength for you, and may what you learn in the coming months help you to act out of hope rather than fear.